Welcome to PlayThink, conversations about games, interactivity, art, and culture. This podcast is recorded live at the USC Game Innovation Lab, which is part of the USC Games program at the University of Southern California. For more information, follow us on Twitter at USC Game Lab or visit our website at gameinnovationlab.com slash playthink. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, this is the PlayThink podcast. Liz Ryerson is a composer, critic, uh, game designer, and podcaster. Um, not just on this podcast, but on her own. She's an avowed leftist and a co-founder of the Game Workers Unite. She believes strongly that the power of action uh, that the power of action of people, both collectively and by individuals, against large corporate conglomerates is crucial to preserving and forwarding digital culture for the betterment of humanity. Um, yes! We, <laughs> I think we all believe that, too, yeah. so thank you so much for coming. Um, so you do so many things. Um, you know, you're a musician, you're a writer, you're a game creator. Do you ever feel pressure to sort of focus on a single mode of creation? I think people feel like they have to be experts at something, like mm. especially if you're like making a career. Um, and I don't feel like I've ever had <laughs> to be an expert. I think that's the thing, like, especially like, I don't know, like, just different areas of, uh, you know, there's so many different, like, areas of specialty and stuff, and I think, like, people are pressured, like, you know, online, on social media and academia, et cetera, to have, like, oh, this is my one specialty, mm-hmm. this is my one thing, and I just, like, you know, I got interested in games, but I, around the same time that I was, like, learning about philosophy, you right. know, and, like, learning about, like, the same time that I was learning about like the Arab Spring and things like that like you know learning more about politics and like around 2010 um mm-hmm. and it's just like you know it one thing goes into the other thing you know so I I don't know I I think it's like I think people oftentimes like put themselves into a box because they feel like it'll make them more employable yeah and maybe it does but it yeah, I I feel like yeah I just feel like interested in in a, a variety of different topics and a variety of different things. So that's super interesting. So you so this journey as a game creator began around two thousand nine two thousand ten. You said so and journey as a game creator. Y- yeah, right. Uh, and it sounds as though it was bound up from the beginning with an interest in sort of politics and movements like the Arab Spring. Do you see those as being related? Yeah, just in the sense of like, if you were following that stuff and, you know, learning about it and reacting to it, then that's going to inform, you know, what you do. Yeah, so how do you make games that I haven't, like, reflect made, that? I haven't made anything like for a while, so I guess it's like, I don't know. Most of the stuff that I've done is, like, either music or writing or, you know, it's been a while since I made, like, Problematic, and I haven't made anything since then. And I've, like, you know, done little things here and there, but... Um, and Problematic was, like, 2013? Yeah, it was a while ago, yeah. so... Yeah, no, I have some I have some comments and questions about Problematic later. Um, so how do you see these um, modes of creation kind of either supporting each other like do you go into composing music and you say I'm going to make music now or is it sort of consonant with your work as a writer and as a sort of game designer so not really Mm -hmm. is the answer it's more specifically just thinking about like you know oh what are sounds that inspire me or what are I mean like I'm not thinking about like you know deep theories or whatever necessarily when I'm like making music you know, I'm not thinking in that sort of mindset but um, just in general like it's just more reacting to like oh what are the kinds of things that I like and kind of imitating them and going off of them and um, kind of responding to just trying to respond to like what is there already in the thing um so not really. I mean, I'm not really trying to, like, I'm very, like, anxious about the idea of trying to build, like, one aesthetic or one mm-hmm. brand because I feel like that 
that like and and maybe maybe that's a bad thing so maybe I think maybe that's a good thing sometimes to do that because it helps like focus in a direction but I think the problem is that people end up getting trapped inside a certain image for their work um, just in general like any kind of like creative field like mm-hmm. oh this is the thing that I do and you know it's easy to say like oh I am the expert in this thing and I know everything in the world about this thing you know and that's great but like I don't like I don't have the desire for expertise as much as I have the desire to just want to like be more informed about stuff so that I don't make stupid decisions (laughs) right no, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, I mean, because I also used to write music, and I write, and and for me, they're very different. They come from a really different place. I think, I think they are different. Um, it's But there's, like, a lot of overlap in terms of general structure. I think mm, I think it's, mm-hmm. I think structure is the thing with music because it's so structured and writing is structured in the same way as, like, you're trying to structure things to have a certain effect. And so I'd say they're... They're similar in that way, but in other ways, not really. I mean, it's much more abstract. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, it's a, it's different. Like, I didn't used to like think about writing that I did like as art, you know, mm-hmm. as as in that way. And maybe that's just the things that I was writing at that point. But um, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure it really matters though. Like, not like, because I'm not going for like. Not trying to write like something like like Finnegan's Wake or something, you know. Right. I'm not trying to be like incomprehensible. <laughs> um, yeah. And like if you're writing an essay, like you know, it's like you're just writing it so that someone will read it on you know a website in that day, and they'll probably forget about it. Hopefully not, but like often <laughs> people forget about it. There is like a, a kind of like um, what is it? Um, like especially with journalism, like you know, things, there's a very of-the-moment nature of that, which Mm. is kind of nice and not nice in a way. So I I guess that's also how I would say that that's different from doing music, because, like, something that's more abstract, maybe you can come into from a variety of different contexts, but it's much more slow, people coming Mm -hmm. into it, whereas, like, if you're writing about... I mean, part of the reason I was writing about stuff, too, is it just got more attention than other things. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because... um... You, I mean, you've made a lot of music, um, but I think I've heard you comment that your music is not as well known as some of the other stuff. And so how... It's like making a career as a musician is kind of a fucking nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) No, fair enough. So what are the things that you've noticed that are sort of different about the way that people receive... I think it is more Your, abstract. Uh, people mm. have trouble listening to audio, and like people will have like viral uh, images, like go viral. Like I know people who are visual artists who have like you know art go viral, but like I've never seen musicians who have like their SoundCloud thing go by. I mean, within those networks, there's it, but it's not like the same sort of mechanism. It doesn't work on the same way on like Twitter and social media in the yeah. same way that like writing or art will go viral because people actually have to sit and listen to music. Yeah, there's a time component to it that's inescapable, yeah. And, like, people are much more visual, so even watching, like, a YouTube video is easier. Um, I mean, like, I've seen musicians who are, I think, like, musicians who are good at doing videos definitely benefit Mm. from that, especially, like, ones that are, like, kind of funny or, you know, um, have an image that is, like, translates well to doing some other kinds of, like, content. Right. Quotes. Um, so, and then when did you get into sort of writing about games specifically? I don't know. It's I think it's something that I was, like, always interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I majored in film, I told you yeah. um, about that. But um, I kind of didn't really have a background in film and just kind of randomly decided to major in film. I, and then, and then after like school, and it was like you know it was good to like learn more about film. Like it, I very much immersed myself in it for a few years, and then I kind of burned out, and I didn't really have equipment to like make films. And it was like very clear that taking this it further would be really really difficult because mm-hmm. um, I had no resources or connections. <laughs> um, 
but I did have some sort of connections via like online forums, honestly, uh, to some game stuff. So that's when I was like, mm-hmm. okay, some of these skills. And I know a lot of people who've gone from film to games, honestly, yeah. like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because specifically because it's like independent film is in a really difficult place and it's hard to make a film get made you know it's hard to like have something get made and get any distribution on it mm-hmm. um, and the just the mechanisms of the industry and stuff and things weren't quite as solidified around games they still aren't but they're more so now than like 10 years ago mm-hmm. um so that so I sort of had a sense of like oh you can so people are sort of doing their own thing here, and I think that was what was like really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And plus, I grew up playing video games. I didn't like yeah. grow up watching like Tarkovsky films. <laughs> I didn't watch like that stuff until I was in college. Yeah, I, I was obviously into games, um, and I played a lot of games just because they were everywhere. You know, everyone always talked about games, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's just like something that easy to get into because that's what other kids were Mm -hmm. into i couldn't talk to them about you know weird music or something in the middle of all because i grew up in the middle of ohio it was like hard to talk to people about weird music or whatever people didn't know who like radiohead was wow yeah like i can't and that was around the time that i was really into radiohead yeah around the time when like kid a and all that stuff came out and and i couldn't talk to people about that but i could talk to people about like oh silent hill is cool or whatever right and and as you say there were it probably felt like there were fewer barriers i mean a film production even an independent film production depends on a lot of people and it depends on getting into festivals there's always the people who are like oh we filmed this on our iphone or like oh we filmed this for like a four thousand dollar budget and it's like but that, like, almost never happens that something like that gets more distribution. And I think that, like, it's just the economics of those things. Like, I think indie film was more of a thing at one point and then yeah. became solidified. And that's sort of, you know, worry about indie games, too, honestly. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, what do you think the role of sort of game criticism and critique is in game sort of development or evolution of games? Well, okay, so the thing is, like, I know people who are like, you know, like, I am a serious thinker about games. This is my career path. Right. And I think those people tend to have a tendency to be like, I am going to write a, you know, like, 10,000 word essay about why Red Dead Redemption 2 is like, has problems with narrative, whatever. And it's like, for me, <laughs> like, I feel like that's what, or like, here's my, like, you know, five-part video series on Dark Souls or whatever. And the problem is, like, when you're trying to, like, make a career doing that stuff, like, I think oftentimes people go into the same, like, I am going to do this. Like, this is what important people do. This Mm. is, like... Mm -hmm. And, like, that's the problem that I have. I think stuff should function in a way that is, like, engaging with the rest of culture, engaging with culture in general, engaging Mm -hmm. with history, engaging with, like, I don't know. I, I don't like the idea that games are a separate from any from from media in general. That they're this separate entity. That different rules apply to games or something. And a lot of people do think that. Um, so I guess that's the the thing that I have. And like the last, especially like more recently, the stuff that I've tried to write has like tried to apply it to general cultural or social mm-hmm. ideas or trends or movements or whatever in a way that like because like every single freaking thing anyone does with the game is like going to apply is going to um reflect their values their beliefs their whatever even if it's just like oh my values are i want to make a mario game like you know like there's values to that too you know um yeah people aren't conscious or aware of that even people who are like games thinkers don't really talk about that stuff a lot it it tends to be like very mechanically focused Mm -hmm. um and one of the reasons that i keep writing about especially as like i tried to submit to serious publications that weren't just games publications right i see that that sounds mean but they didn't necessarily view what i was doing as important so that kind of made me be like, okay, fuck you. <laughs> like, I'm going to continue to write about this because you're not going to take it seriously. 
Um, you mean like when you wrote um, the Duke Nukem yeah, piece for, 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 for Jacobin, Jacobin yeah. and people were like, is this a joke? Well, yeah, some people thought it was a joke. And yeah. some people were like, well, we need, you know, important reporting about politics. We don't need, right. more, you know, we don't need someone to be writing about a 20-year-old video game. And it's like the, the point of writing about that is like how it is relevant to today. Absolutely. It's just that I didn't yeah. say that. I didn't say... This game is relevant to today. I mean, like, I you think you actually have to read it. I think you said it in the way that you discussed the the game, and especially the spaces in the game, which we've talked about yeah. before a little well, the, bit. The game is like so indicative of a certain like cultural. But and like I like engaging with stuff that's kind of weird and upsetting. Yeah. Because like I played that game growing up and I liked it. It's obviously like misogynistic. Like I it's, I don't need to say that because it's like so obvious. And so I'm like, I'm trying to do it in a way where it's like, okay, this is kind of like, you know, reactionary or whatever in a way, but it's also not like something that you can just like throw in the garbage bin. Right. I'm not interested in throwing stuff in the garbage bin. Right. And it's reflecting real anxieties about our sort of our social world. And I, and I think you highlight that when you discuss the spaces that Duke Nukem takes place in. It's this sort of like weird dystopian space yeah. that's devoid of women because they've all been well, like kidnapped. I mean, it's kid- like the, well, the yeah, right. The point isn't like, the point like if people would uh, either want to get from that is like, oh, cancel Duke Nukem. It's like, right. oh yeah, like Duke Nukem is a huge cultural force right now. We need to cancel. Yeah. Or, or like, or they think it's like, oh, Duke Nukem is secretly anarchist leftist. And like, that's not really the point either. Like, right. it's just like, like looking at these, kind of grotesque elements of culture mm-hmm. uh, and, like, examining them and taking that seriously. I mean, like, I, I know a lot of... The dude has a lot of issues, but uh, Slavo Žižek has, like, a, a movie called... Yeah. <laughs> His movie called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, and he talks about, like, ideology in it. I think it's, like... I think it's a testament to the filmmaker of that movie that his ideas were made more coherent... Um, I haven't seen it. Yeah, so, okay. so he finds this, uh, the one who directed the movie, and he's talking about, like, you know, ideology or whatever. But he's, like, using very popular media mm-hmm. examples. Like, you know, he's using, like, the sound of music. Right. Or a uh, taxi driver. Or, like, you know, Batman, uh, Christopher Nolan Batman. Like, you know, to talk about this stuff. So it's, like, using examples of that as, uh, you know... And I think that is a really good way into, like, talking about mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to talk about another essay that you wrote um, recently about Thief. Um, it's just so good. I mean, first of all, that game ha- made a big impact on me when I played it, so I was How delighted was to that? see Like, when it came out, oh, so wow. it was a, a long time ago. <laughs> so I barely remember it, actually, but then reading your essay and seeing all your screenshots, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that space, or I remember that that event that happened. Um, But you start your essay with a discussion of space and you write about this Uh, serial serial killer's murder castle. Yeah, murder mansion. Murder mansion. Um, Yeah, so how did you come across, because I'd never heard of this before. I was just listening to one of those like serial killer podcasts. Podcasts, It's like the true crime stuff, you know, like stuff about cults and serial killers. So, right, so so you describe this guy's like, and I don't know, it wasn't fully built, right? Like it was sort of in progress, but then he was arrested before it was completed. So this happened in the late, 19th century right. and like details about this story are very like you know like the idea of a serial killer wasn't even developed mm-hmm. yet people mm-hmm. weren't even aware of I mean of course serial killers existed but the idea that it was a recognized thing um so who knows like so who knows um what exactly mm-hmm. uh I don't know how much was exaggerated because if you look at like the the building, it looked very sort of normal on the outside. Right. But it seems that, at least in some way, that there were some, like, bizarre passageways and stuff. Right, but so... The, the point the point of all talking about that space and the reflection of space is talking about how this uh, dude who's the villain in the game... Constantine. Who, yeah. You yeah. go to, like, his mansion, and it's, like, you know, kind of kaleidoscopic weirdness mm-hmm. about how that's, like, reflective... This idea of like 
hypersubjectivity or this idea of like um, humans returning back to nature, this idea of like Jungian collective unconscious, mm -hmm. this idea of like primitivism mm -hmm. is something that like is inherently very like loaded and it's something that like reactionary movements like will call. So it's like that kind of like violence uh, that that kind of stuff brings up mm -hmm. is it directly like and having like the fact that that game was one inspired by like the third man and that the third mm -hmm. man is about Vienna and Vienna is sort of where fascism like yeah. uh, was birthed. It was like made me think about like, oh, okay, these are kind of all related to each other. So. Yeah. Yeah, and you point out also little details like the, um, Garrett, the main character in Thief, doesn't have a map to the building, so you kind of go in blind and you have yeah. to figure it out, and it's really weird. Well, that's a very 90s um, video game. It's a very trope, 90s trope, you yeah. Explore a space on your own. Well, because I play a lot of, uh, like, the Doom modding community is still a big thing, and I wrote a piece for Waypoint about, like, this Russian Doom mod that was called uh, Alt. Um, and... Um, mostly by like a Ukrainian guy, but um, it's very bizarre, um, but very like surreal and very like psychological horror type thing. Like seeing that relationship between that and sort of like mm. political stuff, because you know, you play it and it's like, there's something going on here, but I don't know what. Yeah. And that's sort of like the feeling that I try to explore with that thief thing too. It's like, there's mm -hmm. something going on here, but I don't know what it is. Right, and it's also about um, sort of class and gender, too, I think, because as you point out, in the case of the serial killer, Herman Mudgett, or whatever, H.H. H. Holmes, yeah. I think is his yeah. sort of alias, um, you know, nobody questions the young entrepreneur, like the white bro yeah, entrepreneur. He was like a doctor or something. Right, he was a surgeon, I think yeah. you said, a really talented surgeon. And, and so he got the, away with things. Supposedly he would like sell the bodies of women he killed into like medical science. Right, probably to like, his own students. Yeah, I mean, right? I don't know, like, I, like this is a thing that it's like hard to ever prove that it happened. Yeah. It wouldn't be surprising. But this was like a common phenomenon is that like bodies would just mysteriously appear in like, because uh, like the medical industry was growing and they needed more, uh, you know, donated like cadavers to do yeah. research on. And so they didn't ask questions about mm -hmm. where they got those bodies from because, you know. Right. Um, so I don't know, but but like, the point is, like, sketchy stuff happened around that era. Around right. The, the, well, like, specifically, like, the layout of that guy's castle is similar. It reminded me in some ways to this, like, Constantine uh, place. And yeah. It, and in trying to draw out, like, this very video gamey environment that also has kind of this weird Alice in Wonderland thing going on mm -hmm. has, like, it has direct connections to something in reality in real life. It's not just like this yeah. fantastical thing. There's right. something going on here. And Garrett is also, you know, he's a thief. He's lower class. He's infiltrating yeah. in order to sort of well, steal yeah. from this the, dude. The thing I love about that game is that all the decorations, are like all the castles you go into, it's like super gaudy. Yeah. It's all this like blown out wallpaper and stuff. And like when we look at like, um, you know, elegant white uh, Ro Roman statues. It's like all that stuff was painted, like, mm -hmm. and it looked super garish, like back then. So we think of like, you know, this like classical aesthetics, you know, like right? Simple, white marble, white marble, yeah. Because that's kind of a aesthetic that sensibility that's popular now. Yeah. Uh, you know, in minimalism. Like, minimalism. Yeah. yeah hip minimalism, and, but like a lot of that stuff was super gaudy, and you can see the way that it kind of like you know people. <laughs> People say, like, you know, there's guys insecure about their masculinity that they'll buy a Ferrari or whatever. That's, like, kind of, like, you can see that in Thief, and, like, they do that kind of as a joke. Like, it's yeah. very intentional. So is Constantine, like, nouveau riche No, then? he's more of, like, a, a straight-up, like, okay. um, <laughs> a megalomaniac. But, like, some of the other characters are more like, like, I'm going to have this, like, you know, gaudy decorations and this, like, you know, something that, like, the kind of person who is, like, 
upper middle class McMansion type would, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> would. Because, like, the McMansion stuff is, like, pretty similar in some way in gaudiness to, like, uh, you know, what the what these people would mm-hmm. be would be doing. It's like, I am, I am showing class signifiers of myself by taking on, you know, by showing, like, that I have this cool pool in my house or, like, you know, and that stuff is, like, pretty universal. Well, I mean, it's such an interesting tension culturally, I think, because on the one hand, this, like, going into the villain's, like, enormous gaudy mansion lair is such a trope in games, but also yeah. in films and so on. And yet, at the same time, American society tells us we should aspire to that, right? Like, we yeah. should want well, the villain's house and live there. Well, and uh, the thing I like about Thief is it kind of makes fun of those people. Oh, yeah. It kind of, like, I mean, your character is not really bad or good, I mean, but you, you're kind of, like... You kind of realize that regardless of what you're stealing from these people, there's like something like much more <laughs> weird and petty going on with all of these people. <laughs> right. They have like their own like weird little power struggles, and um, like they're all like fighting to kind of be more dominant over each other, you know, or to be the, mm-hmm. the, the one that has the most power, and you know, all this like weird power plays and stuff. Yeah, that game is good at exploring. Uh, those that series in general is good at exploring that. Um, but like Thief One has like a more surreal element that I think it's yeah, because it had like hard. zombies and stuff yeah, too, and which are never I, really explained. It, yeah, I and like think. we talk about like the Nazi occult stuff and all mm, that kind of stuff. It gets mm-hmm. to the heart of like some of that element, the stuff that I was just talking about with like the primitivism and like prim- stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of exploring that, and also the the point of that is like. I played that game actually because Robert Yang, who's a professor at like NYU and um, persons maybe, he like writes a lot about level design and he was playing through it. And I was like, you know, I should finally play through this game. Um, and it had it was having its 20th anniversary and I played through it and I was like, wow, this is, I can't believe this game was made in 1998. Like this is yeah. one of the most bizarre games that I've ever played. Because it's like, you know, it has like a immersive, the immersive sim kind of style gameplay right. that like Dishonored and Deus Ex, which I had played mm-hmm. before, and um, you know some of those other games did, which are kind of spiritual successors. Yeah, which are kind Thief. of spiritual. Yeah. But there's like a weird element in there that resonates with me specifically because it's like I'm seeing this for the first time. You oh know? right. Um, it's amazing that people made games at that kind of scope, uh, like that size and scope. Um, with a relatively small team size, like, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, There's only, like, 10 or 15 people on that team, you know, or maybe 20 at the most. Um, Yeah, I remember definitely being floored by it, like, really astonished at its scope. Um, You say, if I may quote some words that you wrote, Liz, so we can talk about them. Um, You wrote um, in the same essay, the lurid details of Holmes's castle are universal. I thought that was really interesting. Um, They have a bit of a fairy tale logic to them and recall the fate of the wife in the infamous tale of Bluebeard. Like Bluebeard, Holmes was involved with many women and many of those women ended up dead in one way or another. And then you talk a little bit about the game um, uh, Judith. Oh, yeah, by, yeah. by Stephen Lavelle and Terry And Terry Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. Yeah. yeah. Terry Kavanaugh, who made, like, Super Hexagon. Which is also about being trapped in a weird mansion. Yeah, Judith is, like, a weird, quirky, like, free indie game um, that is really... It's about, like, blue, the Bluebeard, like, story. Um, and, um, like, the Bluebeard story is, like, a, you know, wife marries this old man and, like, uh, he's saying that, like, he has, like, horrible He has the secrets. keys, right? Yeah. And he's he like, you can go keys. into every room, room in the house except one. And, of course, she goes in there uh, because the Garden of Eden... Yes, because women apples. are fatally curious. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and and it's, like, you know, a corpse or whatever. It's like it's I think it's the, the corpses of his previous wives yeah. are in there. And then he just got... And then, like, he murders her at the end. No, well, her brothers come and oh, rescue yeah, her. Brothers. Yeah. At the end of at the end of the at the end of the Stephen Lavelle <laughs> game and the part or, or in Carrie Kavanaugh game, she gets murdered at the end. Which I think is maybe more 
in a way more realistic. I mean, yeah. but but that game is interesting because it takes place in two timelines, yeah. um, right? Yeah. So you have like the original timeline, which is, it isn't clear how long ago it was yeah. at all. Um, and then there's like the modern timeline where there's this like adulterous couple, if I yeah, remember correctly. Yeah, they're running through this old mansion. And they kind of uncover these like echoes of the past. Or, yeah, that's a really, yeah. it's a really good like free game that no one talks about any, just because it's a little older, but mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite games by either of them. Um, just like a 30 minute, you know, narrative game. Yeah. Um, but um, what I like about that game is that the Bluebeard and that he's like possessive, but he doesn't seem like overly creepy i don't know man i got strong okay. gaslighting vibes okay. well, there's from gas him but like, like this is for your you, own good if you look up the young story lady. of bluebeard it's like oh he was a horrible pirate with like you know if you look at the original story it's like they they like it's very over the top that they made him horrible and i think that that's almost like kind of not true to life and the mm. thing with, like, the H.H. Holmes things is that guy was apparently very handsome. And yeah, and I think that's... So I think that goes back to this um, this question of, like, class and wealth because Bluebeard... I, I'm also fascinated with the Bluebeard um, stories and, and variations. And I don't know if you've read The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. Um, the Bloody Chamber is a story that's based on Bluebeard, but it, it's set in, like, the 1910s, so it's, like, right after... The, it's, like, the Gilded Age, yeah. right? Well, this is the, kind of the same. Uh, right? It's kind of, of the same. And and Bluebeard is presented as he's an older man and he's kind of severe, um, you know, but he's incredibly rich. Mm -hmm. And she's a very young, naive girl who's like, okay, I guess this is, you know, this well, is okay. Dracula is the same, is the and, same oh, that's a good archetype. Point. It's like yeah. so many of these stories, like, are archetypes are based off of, you know, <laughs> Oh, yeah, right? And then... And to me, what's fascinating about Judith is that they're literally trapped inside his, you know, the castle that he yeah, has like created like to to keep graphics. his wives it's, in. It's, yeah, well, it's because it's 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 like very claustrophobic feeling, like yes. intentionally. That's one yeah. way in like the design of like intentionally a lo-fi game like makes it feel more claustrophobic, which is the whole point of the game to feel claustrophobic. I think people don't think about like how to convey an experience or feeling through what they're making in that way, you know, oftentimes people are like, oh, this needs to be more polished. Right. It's like, no, it works perfectly well because, like, it is really claustrophobic playing those, like, Raycaster, yeah. you know, like, those, like, Wolfenstein 3D style games. Like The ceilings seem really yeah. too low. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It, it really is a really good shortcut to conveying all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the... Um, using uh, the lack of clarity as a game design motif, too. Like, sometimes you turn a corner and you're like, what am I even looking at? Oh, I think that's blood. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I see. Well, it's like if yeah. you look at, like, a neural network image or something, yeah. and you don't know what it is, and it actually looks kind of terrifying because it's, like, it's like kind of this mosaic of different images or something mm -hmm. kind of... That makes me think of, like, freaking, like, well of souls or, you know, something like... Where, you know, where they describe, like, the, the, the human horrors and, like, um, things like, I don't know, like, Dante's Inferno or whatever. Like, this like, thing of, or, like, Doom has these, like, you know, screaming faces or whatever. It's just, like, all these, like, things melded together in this horrible. That's what those neural network things remind me of. But, like, sometimes, like, really a abstract pixelated graphics have that effect, too. Yeah. You don't know what it is, and that kind of makes it more... Scary. More scary. Yeah, absolutely. Which is kind of why problematic is kind of the way that's... I was just of, about yeah. to bring up problematic because problematic, your game is also, to me, and this is probably because I'm really bad at platformers, um, it's about being trapped as well. I, I, I told you that I, I said that it's like, it's like hard to like say what it is about and what it isn't because right. it's one of those things that you can like interpret anything into. Yeah. But that is, I mean, that is something that a lot of people have said about that particular game. Like I definitely it's feel, difficult. it's so difficult and I definitely feel trapped and there's certainly times when I'm like, I don't even know which way I'm supposed to go. Like it's not clear to me, just like I'm in a labyrinth. Arbitrary. The difficulty right? is kind of arbitrary feeling too. It's like rules change constantly. Well, it's, <laughs> I was talking, I was talking to somebody <laughs> about this like, I was talking about, like, John Blow and The Witness, because that, right. I also had that piece that I wrote about The Witness, and, like, yeah. this idea that, like, uh, you know, oh, this is such a, like, a, you know, freaking 
power of positive thinking, motivational speaker sort of idea mm. of like, I'm going to like, you know, master all the levels of this like system. And once I come to this point of realization, then I'll understand something fundamental about it. There's nothing like inherently wrong with that, but it's really easy to abuse that sort of mindset. And like, if you look at like, you know, multi-level marketing schemes or like, mm. you know, cults uh, <laughs> or things like that, um, they'll use that sort of like, uh, you know, oh, I wasn't like my, you know, like it, like if somebody is like sick, they'll be like, oh, you know, you were, you're not putting out good energy into the world. Like it's really easy yes. to use those sort of concepts. Yes. And I think like, like the witness is something like that where it's like, um, it's about that relationship, you know, between that and the game. But in this way is kind of reductionistic because I think a lot of those like tech people bought into this idea that like, through this just like we're gonna figure out this ideal recipe for technology and it's just gonna answer everything it's gonna save the world and anyone who's yeah. like and this is like it's not even like i think like that stuff isn't even good science like they think of themselves as scientists but i think like if you were a scientist and you were only choosing to look at a very limited subset of what you're making things in like if you don't choose to look at like culture or society or like power dynamics or any of that stuff, then how can you even say that you're going to change the world? Like how is like, but it's this idea that you can separate social factors yeah. from like, we're going to like, you know, through the will of our innovation, um, you know, change that kind of stuff. So like the whole thing with like, I was very inspired by John Blow's original like uh, for a while. You mean um, Upbraid? Upbraid yeah. and like, his ideas of, cause I think he had some good ideas, but I kind of realized how ridiculous that mindset is of like, you know, uh, of, you know, it's the conquest and mastery thing, but in mm. a way that kind of reflects it as a larger worldview. Um, mm -hmm. and so like something like problematic is kind of making fun of that in a way of like saying like, you know, kind of like, absurdist in that like, Oh, like the rules are just going to change and fuck you basically. Um, and there's a part in the game where it says, go fuck yourself, so. <laughs> well, and uh, it also, uh, sort of in conversation with um, Emily Short, um, she sort of pointed out how games don't really confront um, agency, or it, it, this was back in like 2017, um, and she was sort of thinking about how when you participate in a system, you know, you are, kind of by definition complying with the system, you're yeah. sort of submitting to the system, and then how do you then resist the system? Um, and you talk about how problematic is sort of meant to kind of force us to confront that fact. Yeah, because like everyone, like literally everyone, I, I, I hate it when like I talk to people and they're like, it's like you, you could do a little better about this. Like, or, you know, a good example is talking to people about like, maybe you don't need to write about like Red Dead Redemption 2 or Dark Souls, <laughs> although maybe you could write about some of these indie games that no one else is writing about. And they'll be like, well, I have to make a career. No one reads this stuff, which is often true, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I get that logistics thing. I am like, I feel like people assume a level of shaming, like a level mm. of like, you're not doing it right. That's not what I'm saying. Like, you have to make decisions for your career, like no matter what situation you're in. Uh, you have to make decisions based on survival. But getting beyond that point, like what can you do within that? And I think a lot of people just don't even get to that point of asking, like, yeah. Um, and like a recognition that you're put, like a lot of people in particular put in us, uh, you know, the more poor you are, the more like marginalized you are, the the more you're put in impossible situations. Yeah, and I, it's frustrating, right? Because like, you know, you might go out and vote, but then you feel like voting has how much power? You know, you feel like, yeah. it, it's easy to feel like it doesn't matter what you do, I, I guess. Yeah. So I guess that, that's a constant struggle for me as well, is how do I sort of, you know, continue to do things and make myself do things that I believe are gonna benefit or move Move us towards something positive. There's there's never any time that anyone just comes up to you and says, like, this thing that you did will benefit society. Like, <laughs> there's no, like, there's, like, that's not something that is decided. That's not something that, like, is decided by any one person or that is really apparent. Especially, like, if you're doing stuff online and, like, you know, 
your work has an impact on a lot of people, but they don't, you don't see them, so you don't know. And maybe yeah. it has impact on two people. But for those two people, it was really big. So is that worth it or not? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, um, I don't think that there's an easy answer. People want to look at these things as black and white, and they're not. I think that's the frustrating thing. It's And it's true with social media is, like, there's shaming around, like, specific things. And it's, like, it's easy to look at something as a black and white problem mm-hmm. of, like, oh, I should be doing this and doing that. And I mean, it's, like, that meme that I was telling you about of, like, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this meme, of, like, um, there's, like, a peasant that's, like, a walking, like, car- with, like, like a really old peasant that's like um, we should improve society somewhat and then this guy is like yet you participate in society <laughs> curious yeah <laughs> um, yeah it's just easy to like you know be like oh why are you uh, complaining about capitalism on your smartphone exactly like you're participating in this yeah, yeah. it's like I don't like the, everything is full of contradictions at all times like yeah it's impossible not to engage with things in a like like there's no black and white there's like basically never any black and that's not to say that like there isn't like things that are right or wrong but um the fact that there's no black and white is a big like you know thing about that but that's mm-hmm. the, the thing of like i feel like anybody asks me about that game is like i say something different every time <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, but so let's go to sort of things that we can do to, um, you know, resist the system, if you will. And one of the things that you... Give um, like a checklist. Yes. Yeah, give us a checklist, Liz. Um, one of the things that you did um, last year um, was you were part of the foundation of Game Workers Unite, and yeah. you went to GDC, and you, you know, there was a roundtable. Um, yes. You did a bunch of protests. And so it's a year later or it's a year since since then, um, where do you think Game Workers Unite is now, and how can people sort of continue so to push it forward? I haven't been involved for a while. I, I mean, I've said this, like, a lot. I, I haven't been involved for a pretty long time. Like, I got involved in starting it. I'm planning on getting involved again when I move, but so I, I am not, like, the best person to ask about that, probably. I think, like, it's a difficult problem because um, it's... I mean, these conversations have happened in the industry. Like, I remember, you know, when, like, people would come up to me at GDC in 2018 and be like, oh, we've been talking about this for, like, 20 years or 30 years. Um, but uh, it's a long it's a long way to go. There's a long way to go, especially, like, there's a lot of internalized ideas that people have. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are afraid of joining groups because they don't want to get fired. They don't want to, and, like, employment is really precarious. Um so, and it's a long way to build trust uh, within companies, and also, like, it's just, it's, it's in my opinion, got to be a different model. And I think a lot of people in Game Workers Unite share this, too, from mm-hmm. what I understand. Like, it's got to be a different model than, like, the film industry and stuff, um, because, well, one, like, the film industry has problems, like, Ian, it, it does have unions, but... Yeah. It has plenty of other problems like that. Games aren't as centralized. Um, indie games are a, a big thing. And what is indie and what isn't? Like, no one can tell you. No one can tell you. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a AAA game development studio in 1993 is, like, could be five people. Uh, and now it's 500 people. <laughs> and uh, and uh, a development studio with 30 people can be considered indie, you know? So like the definitions are constantly changing and what does that mean and it's 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 so like there's so much like it's and it, it's gonna have to depend on you know different different uh actions different groups different and i think like they're also trying to like get more local groups started so that things can be more focused on um specific you know what the needs are of a specific community or mm-hmm. specific, you know, around particular game development hubs. Also, just, like, getting people to trust each other, getting people to, like, hang out with each other in person, that seems like a non-trivial thing, except for the fact that this is game developers we're talking about, and they don't like to go outside. <laughs> or like, Good point. <laughs> they like to be on their computers. Like, I'm not, like, you know... I'm not, so, like, like Discord I, I, channels? I have, I have issues with, like being a shut-in, so I understand. Yeah. But that's, like, a hard, like, 
hard thing to like mm -hmm. get past culturally, I think. Yeah, like how do you perform activism? Security is an issue. Mm -hmm. like, people do stuff online, so. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I wanna um, leave some room for questions um, and discussion. Um, I do wanna just briefly mention your GDC talk, um, though, from this year. You were part of the Indie Soapbox, and you, were, you talked about punk rock yeah. and punk indie games, and kind of how they're similar and how they're different. Well, there's no, like, clear definition of, like, what rock even means anymore. I think I was right. sort of talking about that of like punk was a certain sort of ethos and idea um, especially like 70s and 80s it was kind of countercultural. it wasn't widely I mean it had like a moment in the UK like you know with the Sex Pistols and stuff but especially during like the US in the 80s like when punk was a big subculture it wasn't really in the mainstream. There were occasionally like there's bands like REM that were kind of popular but um, so, and it wasn't a thing, and then, like, the end of, things kind of changed, and things kind of exploded with, like, grunge music, uh, and Nirvana specifically, and Nirvana, like, you know, uh, was very attached to all of those, uh, sort of the structures built, lineage and whatever, but all that kind of stuff blew up, um, like, blew all of it up, because mm -hmm. it got taken over by, uh, so there's a quote from, uh, Ian Mackay, who are, um, one of our uh, presidential candidates, Beto O'Rourke, was like, oh, I'm so inspired by Ian Mackay, which is uh, funny to me, given some of their political differences. But anyway, um, he was like, uh, you know, like, before a certain point, people were just talking about, like, music and sharing ideas and stuff, and after a certain point, people were talking about business models. Like, mm -hmm. and that's something, a shift that I saw happen in indie stuff. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, just because... You know, when there is a sort of a market or ability to monetize something that looks like what you're doing, there's a huge temptation to do that with anyone, but it comes with a lot of problems, and I think, like, a lot of people get into indie game development now thinking, like, oh, I'm going to hit this market or this market, and they don't realize how much it's been like taken over at this point, yeah. and how much there are people with much more resources than you, do, like, doing that stuff, and people think that People think that they're making something more safe by making it more mainstream accessible when they might actually be putting themselves in a worse situation. Because maybe, like, if, especially if you're a limited, you have niche appeal just in general, maybe just focusing on that niche appeal is a better idea. Um, and not spending, like, five years working on something, but, like, spending on six months working on a variety of different small projects not burning yourself out, not like, mm. none of those are like conversations that are really had like widely and you'll get a lot of contradictory and oftentimes horrible advice mm. from like <laughs> going to GDC panels about this stuff. It's like, yeah, if you look at every single successful indie game developer who probably have all had panels at GDC, you're gonna be like, I'm gonna follow their model. I'm sure that like they did something right, but a lot of people came from positions of privilege, like economically mm -hmm. or, they just got lucky, you yeah. know? Or they just happened to be making something in an exact way that, you know, or they, yeah, I don't know. It's unpredictable. So I, I think, like, the important thing is there needs to be, like, a space to talk more about free games, like, things that are not... There needs to be more of, like, a resurrection of some of the stuff that wasn't popular and isn't known, and, like, there's so much stuff coming out that no one knows about and mm -hmm. talks about and writes about. Um, so that needs there needs to be some movement or, around that kind of stuff. And um, so that's something yeah. that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And I love that you're doing that, like, talking about games like Judith, for example, which is a very quirky, small Well, I mean, that, it's not game. even, like, I'm not even doing that yeah. as, like, a public service. I'm doing that because that game resonated a lot with Yeah. Me, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, every, every once in a while I'll play an indie game where I'm, like, even if it isn't, like, 100% good, even if it's only, like, 20% good. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It made me think about something differently. You know? Yeah. And I think the more that people like move towards polished, the more that kind of stuff gets sanded out a lot of times. Mm, that's a great point. Um, let's open up the discussion to other folks now, because I'm sure we have some okay. thoughts. Hello. Hi. Yeah, um, this is in reaction to what you were saying about like, uh, 
punk games and uh, counterculture. Namely, I'm wondering if, in your eyes, if there's like a space for like a games counterculture now when culture as a whole feels a lot more fragmented mm. thanks to the internet and what would like and what would like countercultural games look like now? Well, I think the, the part of the thing with punk is it's, it's not just a, an aesthetic. I think people think of it in terms of an aesthetic, but it's also kind of like about sustainability. And I think the, the first answer would be to like find what, like, you know, it's the thing that people say in organizing a lot, like find your people. Find like what sort of ideas um, you value and what kind of principles you want to sort of organize around. Find the people who would collaborate and work with you on that. Find a reasonable amount, you know, find something where you can realize what you want to do in a reasonable way that isn't going to, like, that isn't making your grid... Because you've seen, like, everyone's seen, like, what happens when someone makes their dream game for six or seven years and then burns out and never wants to go into game development yet. Like, that's not a model to follow. Um, and, like, find a way to maybe, like, write about other stuff that you're interested in just from a different perspective. Like, I'm not always good about writing about, like, indie games and stuff. Like, that piece was about Thief, you know. It's, like, a game that plenty of people have written about, but hopefully a different perspective on that. So, like, find something that is kind of your own unique sort of perspective. Um, I think people could do, you know, like, uh, a better job of, like, presenting this info. Like, how do you present criticism in a way that's interesting that'll be, like, uh, like YouTube or, or things like that, using the tools that you have in a way that's more intentionally focused and also, like, drawing upon things that aren't just all video games, but it's, like, these are general cultural principles. Um, it doesn't have to be just about video games. It could be about... Um, and sort of building a, a network or whatever around that. Um, I think that's, like, all that stuff is just way more doable than, um, so I think that's where it has to start, and, like, you know, I've talked to people just on, like, a little Discord chat about starting, like, a little website and just trying to have, like, a, a podcast or something. I'm trying to figure out exactly what I want to, because I also want to do stuff with music and stuff, too, but, like, um, trying to organize people around the same place to not, because I think people being isolated and not being able to talk to each other about these things is... And you know that, like, I know that people all have these thoughts about, like, how am I going to survive doing what I do, especially if it's weird and different. Um, mm -hmm. And the more, yeah, more, like, find, find, finding your people, finding the ways to make it work in a way that isn't just like, oh, we're starting a company and, you know, we're going to have all this formalized. Maybe it isn't that. Maybe you have another job. You know, it may be full-time, maybe part-time, but maybe you can still find a way to do this. There's no, like, secret magic key. And that was, I think, the big advantage of punk music is that they had shows. Like, people yeah. had to physically come to shows and meet each other and see each other face-to-face -face and the kind of community. And baby castles should, and, yeah. you know, people are trying to do that with stuff, games, yeah. but it's there's, not, like, there's, we, like, it's not there's built like, in. Here yeah. and, like, like, baby castles in New York. But there isn't a lot. Like, it's not... It's not I mean, there are a lot of events that people go to, but it's it, exorbitantly expensive to go to GDC and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Um, it's better to have smaller things, too, um, and especially local things. Um, and that's a, it's a hard thing to build up. Yeah, so um, I'm a think, I was thinking while you were talking about the ecosystem of writing about games, like journalism about games and indie games and the kind of community building that you're, you're talking about. And it seems to me that you know, one of the advantages that something like, like, for example, punk rock had was that there was an understood format for writing about music mm -hmm. that spoke to people even when they didn't listen to punk rock. Mm. So you could read something in like a local newspaper about a punk rock band or a punk rock show and be excited about it because the project of that piece of media, that journalism, was to get you excited about it yeah. and kind of be an entry point for you. And it's and, and just this is my opinion, and I'd love if, to see what you think about this. My opinion is that a lot of games journalism to date has been 
more about holding people out, like sort of mm. building a cool space where you know already know what I'm talking about. Especially right? when you're talking about like the deeper thinker. Type yeah, people, it's yeah. like you already understand mm. me or you don't. Yeah. And this mimics the way that a lot of game culture is always about, well, you're with us or against us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, well, first of all, like, I think punk did have a problem with exclusionary. Like, punk always had a problem, especially as it became more solidified, like, as it became more of a growing subculture and, like, um, skinheads and things like that. Uh, there were definitely problems with punk and, like, it being, like, a hyper-male energy kind of space most of the time. And, you know, a lot of... I mean, like, a lot of spaces weren't as white as people think they are, but they still were, you know, more white than... I think that I think I think that is true that like there is this kind of in in crowdness or like you know uh, the opinionated geek guy kind of like Yahtzee or whatever you know uh, opinionated nerd man kind of uh, archetype for um, for games that's definitely true I think that like I mean like but you look at like how popular some YouTubers and streamers are. They do, like, there are personalities that get people interested in games, but uh, the problem is they all tend to do the same things, and a lot of them aren't super critically, um, you know, inclined. Well, and a maybe lot of not also inviting of new people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, some of them that are more, like, generally focused, I, I'd say, are, but, like, it's, it's almost like an empire at this point, like some of yeah. those, like, mm -hmm. Let's Players and Twitch streamers. I mean, like, the, the one I think, but I do think those streamers being, like, excited has created, like, more of an interest in, like, indie horror games, for example, but it only, like, works for some things. But I think that is, like, the venue where that stuff has happened. Yeah. I think it, I think there is definitely a possibility for, like, um, it just, I think people need to think about how, like, how to make, like, how exactly to get people to... It's hard to get people to download a game and play it if they've never heard of it, and they, you know... Um, and that, that's where I think, like, Let's Plays and YouTubers and stuff come in a lot. Um, because, like, people, watching people's YouTube reviews or Let's Plays have been good for me in uh, deciding whether I want to get a thing or not. Um, so I definitely think, it, especially more critically inclined people who have an interesting perspective and aren't just, like, saying, this game's socks and you know <laughs> or you know whatever um should like do that stuff but not just like with youtube or twitch but like that is a venue um and there doesn't have to be this barrier between like you know either PewDiePie, either i'm not i won't even use P, I, i'm not even gonna say that guy's name uh like markiplier we'll say markiplier mm, okay. who's also almost as popular and not quite as horrible baggage yeah. um who is much more like kids watch him general audience versus like you know hardcore game man guy mm -hmm. um there has there there can be somewhere in between that's more interested in like i think it just like building those kind of ideas and hype and you know it, i think it's very possible it's just like something has to coalesce around so people have to like talk to each other <laughs> Yeah, for did sure. Did you, you have a question? Yeah, I think I did. Um, so I took your class last semester, and uh, one of the last lectures you gave was um, kind of like a warning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. yeah and like, um, it really stuck to me. I was like, okay, like, you should decide that it's not very um, promoted here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and for those of you that weren't in the class, it was um, um, the, that um, the game industry isn't all, like, peaches and cream, you know, it's, like, cutthroat. Um, they, they'll exploit your passion, whatever. Stuff changes a lot, too, yeah. constantly. Like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to explore this. Like, people are like, oh, I'm all into VR now. And then five years later, people are like, oh, VR isn't as much of a thing, you know. And like, yeah. So, like, um, do you have any, like, so my question is, do you have any advice that you'd give yourself as a college student? If you could, mm. if there's something you <laughs> wish you knew as a college student that you know now, what would it be? Okay, I realized that we didn't repeat the questions because we're... But you already, should repeat yeah. Aurora's question. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, you do? Okay, great. Uh, so is there any... Uh, the question was, is there any uh, advice that you would give yourself as a college student knowing... I don't know. Like, so I, I, I was sort of saying about this, like, it depends on what you want to do. 
I don't. I just think you shouldn't think of yourself as like a horrible failure if you try and do the thing where it's like, oh, I can't start an indie company and have my vision be realized. Or some people are like, oh, I can't get hired for the big company that I want to work for. You know, like I think it's okay to not know what you're gonna do and to start slow and to even like get a job somewhere else if that is gonna pay the bills. Um, and to like think about like how you want to do this thing long term and I, I think it's really good a good idea to explore like more what's out there and to just kind of get a general sense and absorb stuff as much as you can because um, you're always presented no matter like what school you go to you're always presented with a certain idea of like how things are because that's just like everything is always going to reflect the biases of like what you know of um, just by nature of like being part of any system or any school or whatever. Um, so just going out and seeing like kind of what's out there and uh, trying to explore on your own. That's a thing of like, I was, you know, I was made familiar with a lot of stuff in school, but I didn't understand its resonance with the real world until I went out into the world where I can like look at philosophy. Something like philosophy was something that would be extremely abstract and not interesting to me. And then kind of, being able to connect it back to my real life and connect this stuff, I think is like yeah. the important thing. So, and I, I don't think there's any like one answer and I don't think, I just think you shouldn't like be like, cause it gets like driven into you. It's like, oh, I need to get a job doing what I want to do. And I need to do exactly this or exactly that. And it's not really about that. It's more of a gradual thing and like um, not burning yourself out and thinking about like, you know, trying to just explore things when you can, when you have time, you know, and giving yourself space to do that and not putting effort, not putting effort into things that aren't going to be meaningful or useful to you in terms of like, I mean, obviously, if you have a job, you need to put effort into the job. But like, sometimes people put an effort as like, oh, I'll career advancement. And then they realize like, oh, this is not what I wanted to do at all. And that's the thing, like, I think taking some time to try and absorb a little bit before you invest fully in one thing or another thing is, is probably the best idea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I was just reminded of uh, something Werner Herzog said. He, he was asked like, what should I do if I want to be a filmmaker? at some you know talk he was giving and he said go work in a fish factory <laughs> and, and just, his point was just to give yourself some of that space and time i think um i, I wanted to just ask uh, your thoughts on on some labor questions um you know uh particularly in terms of like how do you define how do you define it you know independent of the game workers uh stuff how do you define what a game worker is and i'm, I'm thinking in terms oh. of sort of game workers okay. downstream and also upstream you know, so like, uh, are, are people who are manufacturing microprocessors part mm -hmm. of the games industry? Yeah, uh, are Twitch streamers workers mm -hmm. in the game industry? I don't think there's a, like, a, so the question is, uh, how would you define what a game worker is? Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I mean, like, I, I tend to view these, I don't tend to view games as a separate entity, and if somebody's like a Twitch streamer or a YouTuber, they're like a person who makes content or somebody's doing writing criticism, they're a person who makes like content or, you know, media online. Um, it's kind of like all the same. And I think kind of like making games is part of that too. It's the same as like, you know, somebody who's like an artist online. And sometimes people, they're artists, they work in games and maybe that's like, you know, they do pixel art or something like that. I don't think there's an easy way to define what a game worker is. And I think that's something that, like, I actually think that's something that Game Workers Unite is, is, is having, you know, is trying to figure out specifically because, like, in the film industry, you know, things are very much divided based on discipline. And even at AAA publishers, things are not as divided. Like, they will have someone, it's like, okay, we're going to have you do QA at this point, or you're going to do this thing, or you get moved over and shifted over. And I don't necessarily think that having things divided into specific disciplines is even a, always a good thing anyway. Yeah. Um, so, and, and especially when we're talking about like indie dev or studios, like obviously more roles are going to intermix. Um, so having, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. Like, I mean, everyone is like, I think everyone is a, a worker in the sense that like, uh, you know, like, 
like if you put your stuff on social media, like that company is uh, monetizing you, mm-hmm. and you should uh, put stuff on there with the awareness that that's happening and that you are doing work for them, even when it even when it's just like, hey, what's up, everybody? Yeah. You know, like. Uh, even when it's like YouTubers or streamers being like, I'm going to have a chat with my fans, you're still doing work. Like, and it becomes more obvious like the, the more they have like followers and stuff, the more that they're doing work. Because uh, you see, like, I don't know, there's like... I was, there's a, a video series on YouTube uh, by somebody that I know named Shannon Strucci. is about parasocial relationships. Um, and parasocial relationships are sort of fan-creator relationships in the way that people like... Um, and a lot of, like, online content is sort of built around that. And she had, like, clips of this YouTuber named Jacksepticeye who, like, plays, and he's just being like, well, I'm so sorry I can't be here for my fans. You guys are so wonderful, you know. And, like, I'm sure that guy is 100% genuine, but there is always a level of performance to that kind of stuff. And it, like, it becomes a business, like, regardless of whether you see it. And I think that's just the... The, the venue of so I think people should think of themselves as workers and think of themselves as doing labor even if you're making like a weird free game or you know whatever so with that in mind like think about like um, you know what are you doing with that and like but but I think without I think dividing the line between you know what is a worker and what isn't is kind of difficult and I think doing it is maybe you know mm-hmm. it's not the best to like uh try and decide what isn't games and what isn't not games, for example, or what is not games. So I don't know. I don't think there's an easy answer to that, basically. Yeah. Okay, I think we're at time. Okay. Yeah, so thank you so much, Liz, for coming. It was so delightful to have you. And you can find her at elaguro.com. Yeah. E-L-L-A-G-U-R-O. But it has a link to all my social media. It does. So you can find her there. Thanks, Liz. 